very happy that our we came. Uh, it was a close connection to come from the East Coast. Professor Stephen uh, Zabo, I had to ask him how to pronounce his name because there's a Hungarian possibility, a German possibility, and I asked him what is the American one, and I hope I uh, got close to it at least. Um, before I introduce him, let me say a couple of words uh, uh, about this event. Um, it is a first in a what hope becomes a series of um, talks on Europe and the United States. Uh, I call the series at this point Clash of Cultures with a big question mark, the US and Europe in the 21st century, and the Clash of Cultures or Clash of Civilizations started already out in the food line because when I decided that we would get the uh, lunch from La Chatelaine's, there was a problem that this would be with plates and silverware and glasses, <clears throat> and that's very impractical and uh, cumbersome to clean up. And the suggestion was we should rather get a box lunch, say from Schmidt's sausage house or something like that, uh, which would be plastic, but then quick in and out and easy to clean. And this fault line, the civilization uh, clash, runs somewhere around Lane Avenue for me right now between these places, until I realized that Schmidt's uh, sausage kitchen isn't uh, that American either, seemingly, if you look at the name. But anyway. Um, I would like to thank the Honors and uh, Scholars Program at uh, the Ohio State University for sponsoring this event. Uh, in fact, it is because I'm teaching a class for our collegium students at the university. Those are sort of the best of the best, if I may say so. A small group, I believe, of 40 every quarter added to this group, and uh, maybe I should recognize this group. Can you maybe sort of raise your hands, those who are in the collegium and in this class? That's very nice. This is our future, that of this university, of the state of Ohio, of the U.S., and maybe the world while we're talking about these things. But uh, in any event, uh, I'm grateful to the uh, Honors and Scholars Program and the Collegium Program for helping with the funding. Um, and maybe one organizational thing before I get into the introduction. Uh, it is customary at the Michan Center that you clean up after yourselves, please, uh, after the event. Uh, take out your plates, please, and uh, put them in the trash cans. Not, please, the real plates, only the American version, plastic version. The other, for the other ones, we have been standing out there. Uh, Professor uh, Stephen Zabo is coming to us uh, from... Uh, the Johns Hopkins University from the School of Advanced International Studies there, or to be more precise, he's coming currently from their Bologna Center in, in Italy. Um, I don't know why he would leave Bologna to come to uh, the Midwest, but uh, one reason might be that he is a native of Cleveland, so he knew what he was getting into when he left Bologna. And uh, he has been teaching there as the Stephen Mueller Chair of German Studies uh, for the past year. and. Um, has been with Johns Hopkins University since 1990. Before that, he was uh, teaching at the National War College, um, was chairman there for West European Studies, and also had a number of years with the U.S. Department of State and the Foreign Service Institute, um, uh, and uh, moved around from Georgetown University, where he got his Ph.D., to these institutions. Um, his area of interest and expertise is... Um, uh, Europe, one can say, I think, uh, in general, Germany in specific. Um, he uh, very much focuses on uh, issues of security, so it's very appropriate to have him here at the center, which after all calls itself the uh, Center for Security Studies. Um, 
his most recent book and the one that he is going to talk about today with which he travels a lot in Europe right now because uh, very obviously that is a very hot and uh, interesting issue for Europeans um, is Parting Ways, the Crisis in German-American Relations, very recently appeared sort of hot from the press and I think we will hear definitely uh, stories out of uh, that book. But that's not all he's done, obviously. He has uh, written on the uh, German unification, on the uh, diplomacy of the German unification, a book that appeared in 1992, and he has worked on German uh, security uh, with the title The Changing Politics of German Security. Um, previously, he has edited and authored books on the Bundeswehr and Western security. I assume there was a short book, judging by the abilities of the Bundeswehr. Um, <laughs> And uh, a book that is called The Successor Generation, International Perspectives of Post-War Europeans, where he goes through various generations of um, sort of uh, politicians growing up after 1945 with a, a different and new perspective. Um, and all of this he has done, obviously, also in the form of articles and chapters to books. Um, one of those is a monumental uh, book edited by Detlef Juncker, uh, from Heidelberg University, which appeared now also in English, uh, Germany and the U.S. in the era of the Cold War. For those of you who have been around last year, Detlef Juncker also spoke uh, in this room here uh, on uh, German-American relations. Um, Professor Zebo is, uh, has also served in administrative positions um, in his institution, the School of Inter Advanced International Studies. He was uh, dean uh, for academic affairs there for many years and um, also acting dean of the entire school. Um, this book, uh, to come to the topic of today's talk, uh, he wrote during a stay in Germany. He had several grants, including a Humboldt grant and others, to be in Germany. Uh, and this last one uh, for writing this book was at the American Academy in Berlin. And if any of you will ever have a chance to go to this American Academy, it is in a beautiful villa in a park-like setting uh, on the outskirts of Berlin at a big lake overlooking this lake. And I don't know in the world how you could ever have enough discipline to write a book there. Uh, he managed, I would not. Uh, I think others have failed. Um, but um, this is the product of his stay there, and he will talk about this uh, product. And if I find my notes now, I can tell you also what the title of his talk is, but uh, I can't. Here they are, Parting or Mending Ways, German-American Relations in Bush II. And I think they will tell us about the future of German-American relations a little bit. Professor Zebo. Thank you very much for that very warm and generous introduction. It's good to be back in Ohio. As I did grow up, I was born in Toledo and grew up in Cleveland, and I'm still suffering from being an Indians fan, which I've never been able, even though I've lived in Washington since college, I've never been able to get over that affliction. But it's good to be back. I, we have a student actually in Bologna this year from Ohio State, Andrea Boren, who was uh, up here a couple of years ago, and uh, she told me good things about the Mershon Center, so it's, uh, it's good to be here. Also good to see some former colleagues uh, from Bologna, including Mary Ellen O'Connell and others, and Professor Fisher. And it's a very nice place to, to teach, I have to admit. Uh, today I'm going to talk about the German-American relationship, and I do think it was the big surprise out of the Iraq crisis. I mean, most, the, the Brits acted the way the Brits always act. At the end of the day, they supported the U.S. The French acted pretty much the way the French always act, critical of the U.S. Uh, the Italians went along with the U.S. as usual. But the, uh, the, the Germans didn't do what they've been doing for 50 years, which is avoiding a choice between Paris and Washington, always trying to keep a balance, but at the end of the day, 
have generally been one of the most Atlanticist countries uh, in Europe. That didn't happen. In fact, what happened was just the opposite. The German government, Schroeder in particular, went over entirely and supported the French position. And this was a real break. I mean, the only time you could think of this happening before was in the early 60s when uh, Conrad Adenauer, at that time still the chancellor, was very dis disenchanted with John Kennedy, who he thought was too weak with the Russians on Berlin, and tried to create an alliance with de Gaulle, and uh, this was also undercut by his own party. So this time, it didn't happen. And it, 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 so I think that's an important thing that we'll talk about. I think it gives you an indication that you, you, that you should avoid the conventional wisdom that you'll hear from all the NATO NICs that essentially, we've been through this 18 times before, we'll get over it again. Uh, but I think that what's different is that, that this is the one indicator, I'll, I'll give you some others in, in a little bit, about why this is different, because the Germans have never done this before. Uh, if you remember back, uh, I remember that in a number of other cases, you've had a lot of conflicts between U.S. and German leaders, Adenauer and Kennedy, certainly Helmut Schmidt and Jimmy Carter, Helmut Schmidt and Ronald Reagan. Uh, you can think of lots of these very strong personalities on both sides. But at the end of the day, they always stopped short of breaking, and they always supported, at the end of the day, the American position. This time, Schroeder didn't do that. And I think one of the interesting, interesting questions, I think it's really pivotal. I'm not sure we would have had this transatlantic break at, as severe as it was without Schroeder and without the German position shifting so dramatically. Because I don't know that Chirac would have played his hand as fully as he did, if he would have gone as strongly against the U.S. if Schroeder hadn't come around and supported him 100%. There were a lot of indications in early January of uh, 2003 as the war was building up, uh, that, sh that Chirac was telling his forces to get ready, that they would have to go in and support the Americans in the operation in the Gulf. Uh, and it was really only, at, I would say, at the end of January, when there was the big meeting to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Elysee Ali Treaty uh, between France and Germany, <clears throat> when Schroeder basically came out uh, very strongly behind Chirac, and they came out together and made a strong statement. And that, that, that then followed the so-called ambush of Powell at the UN, and the events took off. So you could really say that the Germans had been more like they always were, or at least taken a more of a say, Dutch position or Portuguese position, which was to say, we're not really crazy about this idea of the war. We think it's a bad idea, but we're not going to go 110% against it and not try to oppose you so forcefully uh, in the UN and elsewhere. And when they did that, I think everything changed. And I don't think we're going back. I mean, so, well, I'll talk a bit about that because we just had, of course, a big meeting between the president and Schroeder in Mainz, and it, I think it tells you a little bit about how things have changed. It wasn't exactly a warm and fuzzy uh, meeting. It wasn't John Kennedy in Berlin. Uh, it wasn't even Ronald Reagan in Berlin. It was a very different, cool, business-like, unemotional um, meeting, which tells you, I think, a lot about where the relationship was headed uh, over the next uh, couple of decades. In the, uh, in the, so I think one of the issues that comes up, and uh, for the students especially to think about, is uh, how much of this is structural, how much of this is a really long-term change in the U.S.-German relationship, and of course that means in the U.S.-European relationship, because let's face it, Germany is still the pivotal country uh, in Europe. Where Germany finally decides to go will decide a lot on where Europe goes. You have, of course, a sort of semi-Gaullist France, which has a view of the EU and of Europe's role. 
uh, a more Gaullist kind of counterbalancing uh, role. You have the British Atlanticist or semi-Atlanticist view of not only Blair but most British politicians. So the balance really depends on where Germany goes. If Germany decides to tilt back toward a more Atlanticist position or tries to form an alliance more, let's say, with Britain and Poland, let's say, or and in Italy, that will lead to one kind of a, a Europe. If they decide to hang tough with the French and try to lead a different kind of Europe, I think you'll see the results will be quite dramatic. So where Germany goes in the next 20 years is crucial not simply to the U.S. relationship with Germany, but it's crucial to where, Ger where Europe is going to go, not only in terms of transatlantic relations, but in terms of economic policy, in terms of enlargement, in terms of a whole series of issues about the European identity. So the question is then, was this break a short-term thing? As I mentioned, the, the NATO-NIC idea, it's happened 18 times before. We've gotten over it. We're back again. I mean, they're talking to each other. Schroeder even supported Wolfowitz's nomination to the World Bank, you know, which I'm sure wasn't easy for him to do. Uh, and uh, so was it simply a personal difference? You know, you had these two headstrong leaders who were a very bad chemistry with each other, Schroeder and Bush, uh, and uh, that simply, I think as Richard Pearl and David Fromm, two leading neoconservatives, wrote last year in, in their book, and Fromm was the guy who put in the axis of evil phrase into the, uh, the State of the Union speech. Uh, we are optimistic that once Chancellor Schroeder leaves the scene, Germany will revert to its accustomed friendliness. So, and there's a lot of Germans who think the same thing about when Bush leaves the scene, we'll go back to our accustomed friendliness with the Americans again. So uh, there's that idea that, okay, it's mainly personal. It was a bad, it's sort of a perfect storm of bad personalities coming together, very radical American leadership, a new generation of German leaders who are going to resist that kind of leadership, and that basically uh, once these guys leave, Schroeder may leave next year, um, I still think there's a good chance he will, though you know, we'll see in May when the North Rhine-Westphalian elections come out, but I still think the slight odds would be toward the CDU that we could debate that one. I, I had buried Schroeder in the last election, too. So. And, but certainly, if Schroeder goes next year and you get the CDU, you get Angela Merkel as the chancellor, the mood music will get better, probably. Or when Bush goes, but you know, who comes after Bush will be the big question, that might change things as well. But I doubt it. I think that the point that I would make is that the, the real fundamental changes that are occurring were structural. And it had to do, again, being a security type, I will naturally emphasize the strategic relationship. Those of you who are in business or finance will probably emphasize, no, 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 the private sector relationship is still very strong and growing, and that will take care of the military relationship, which is weakening. Those others will say, no, cultural values will keep us together. We're all part of a Western democratic uh, community, and that will overcome all these differences. But my sense is, no, that the really driving factor in the German-American relationship, and I would say in the U.S.-European relationship, has been the security relationship, and that that is fundamentally uh, changed. And I think the best way to approach understanding what happened is to look at this as a, of a as a model of external internal linkages in which a international crisis, i.e. 9-11 and the war in Iraq, is a catalyst for foreign policy change, but w which is linked not only to changes in the international system, but also to domestic changes. Because after all, it's the domestic actors that have to interpret what the international changes mean in terms of their own foreign policies. And here you have a case of both a tremendous fluidity in the international system. So the structural realists, people like Kenneth Waltz and Mearsheimer would, would argue that this change in the international system 
opened up major changes that will go beyond the personalities involved. But you could also say that actually what happened was that because you had this international fluidity, and I think they're right about that, you also have a situation where the preferences and the cultures come into play. and Because there's more, role, more room now for choice. Again, I mentioned Schroeder going against uh, Bush on this. I, I remember being at a talk that Schmidt gave when he was chancellor in 1980 to a, a number of people from Hamburg. And he was saying, he didn't know as an American sitting there, he'd say, well, I'm sick of this, you know, this Olympic boycott. Timmy Carter was going to put this Olympic boycott so we can't go to Moscow for the Olympics because the Russians have just invaded Afghanistan. But he, then he went on to say, even Margaret Thatcher is taking her team, allowing her team to go to Moscow to compete, but we Germans have got to support the Americans because we need them in Berlin. That's changed, and that's why Schroeder could basically push it further. He didn't have, he didn't have the uh, strategic restraint of a common strategic purpose and, and a common threat. So I think you have both happening at the same time. A very different international environment where you no longer have this strategic threat coming from the east, right on Germany's border. Germany is no longer divided. Berlin is no longer divided. And at the same time, you have a changing domestic political culture in both countries, one that produces George Bush and a very radical administration in terms of foreign policy, in terms of both foreign and domestic policy, probably the most radical administration that we've seen at least since World War II, certainly in foreign policy, and uh, even more radical than Reagan, I would say, in that sense. And you had, at the same time, the emergence of the Berlin Republic, a new, not no longer the Bonn Republic, but the Berlin Republic, which means a lot of things, and I'll go through some of those. It's a different Germany. So you had both going on at the same time, and that's why the personalities mattered more, because leadership matters more, personalities matter more when the environment is more permissive. When the environment is restrictive, like it was during the bi bipolar period of the Cold War, Schmidt had to support Carter. When the, when the environment is more open, Schroeder could have supported Bush, or he could have opposed Bush, or he, could, he had a number of options that weren't there before. And given his own political background, generational background, changing political culture in Germany, that you had the reaction that you had. So what, what's, so what are the key changes in the structure first? I'll just mention a few of these. We can go, in, go into them in more detail. Certainly first, the most important factor, and the reason why I think that this is going to be a long-term parting of ways, and it's not going to be a mending of ways. There's some mending of ways, obviously, because like, things couldn't have got it. It had to get somewhat better after, uh, the, after the rhetoric of the first four years. But the diminished strategic centrality of each country for the other, that's gone with the Cold War. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you no longer have a uh, couple hundred thousand American forces stationed in Germany. You no longer have a Berlin Brigade defending Berlin, a divided Berlin against 400,000 Soviet forces sitting in eastern Germany. You no longer have this, this regime in eastern Germany. Uh, so you have th it, the strategic changes are just massive, and they are, they are most closely felt and most deeply felt in Germany, more than in France, more than in the UK, more than in Italy, because you have a new geography, too. You also have, so, you, so basically the dependence, the strategic dependence of Germans on the United States is way down. It's not zero, but it's not when it was before when it was existential. On the other side, the Americans are losing interest in Europe because the, the security problems in Europe have been primarily solved. Sure, you still have things like Kosovo and, uh, and Bosnia. You still have some problems on the periphery of Europe, but in effect, nobody seriously worries about major interstate warfare within countries in the European Union. The European Union has worked. 
It has solved the American strategic problem in Europe. American strategy is much, much more concerned now with other places of the world, as we all know, the Middle East, the Gulf, uh, Central Asia, East Asia, especially East Asia. And so it's, there's a natural tendency for the U.S. to shift its strategic focus away from Europe. And that, as I say, I think that's the most important factor in the overall relationship. And that's not going to change. It's going to get worse. And that's, I mean, in the sense that it's good because Europe is not a problem. The U.S. doesn't have to worry about it. But as you see American forces leaving Germany, it's a good signal of what's happened. You never would have seen that kind of major withdrawal of American forces uh, during the Cold War. You also have a new geopolitical context uh, for um, Germany itself. Uh, not only is it, as I mentioned, it's no longer a front line and divided state. Russia is now over a thousand kilometers away. It's not exactly a threat. It's a threat in terms of its weakness. If you look at the German defense doctrine today, they'll say the real problem is not interstate warfare, it's organized crime, it's international terrorism, it's the collapse and weakness of failing states like the Ukraine, uh, Belarus, and Russia. So the problem for Russia is no longer worrying about the Warsaw Pact mobilizing major armored divisions to invade Germany. It's just the opposite. It's the inability to control these organized crime gangs and to have any kind of sense of civil order. So that's a big change uh, in terms of security policy. It's, it's, it's quite different than, uh, than having a NATO defending against a major conventional and nuclear threat. I would say Germany is also much more absorbed by the European project. The European project has really accelerated uh, with the end of the Cold War, with Maastricht, the, the, the Euro, and now with the development of a fairly serious European security and defense policy. I think you can, in the Constitution, of course, that's, gonna, that's right now going through the referendum process. Uh, Europe is really an enlargement we saw, again, a number of new nations just come in, including Poland in the last year. Uh, there's maybe further enlargements coming with Romania and Bulgaria soon. The bigger question, of course, of uh, Turkey and Ukraine are hanging out there as well. There's a lot of stuff going on in Europe. And it's, the Europeans are more and more focused on themselves, for good reason, I would say. And the Germans, of course, at the center of all of this. So that also means that their focus is shifting away from the Atlantic to Europe which is another reason why Schroeder made the choice to go with Paris as opposed to Washington. In some respects, it was a very realpolitik choice. He knew that in the future, that's where the Germans are going to be more engaged and not so much with the, U with the U.S. And we can talk about this you know, in the question and answer period, but if you try to think about what is going to be the major, is there a major strategic project that would bring the Germans and the Americans together again, like the Cold War? I can't think of one. And we can talk about why it's not terrorism, <coughs> why it's not the greater Middle East, there's lots of things you can throw out there, but it's very unlikely that you will see the Germans really being so close to the U.S. Uh, uh, and so central. Another factor, that's another structural factor of long-term change, of course, is the, uh, the, the dominance of American power with the end of the Cold War. And that the fact that the United States is no longer balanced to some extent by another power, that is the Soviet Union. With the end of the Soviet Union, a lot of the restraints on American power were pulled out. And to some extent, uh, you had um, fewer checks on American power, and there is, as I think, as a result, a proclivity for both increasing unilateralism and hubris. Uh, you could, and I think to some extent, we see that the internal checks on American power have not been working very effectively over the last four or five years because of 9-11. So you have 9-11 coming into this fact that you don't have a balance on American power. That means that the Americans to have less incentive to have alliances because they slow you down and when you have 9-11, you have this increasing sense of vulnerability and danger, which the Europeans don't share, which further divides the U.S. Uh, from the, uh, the Europeans. 
So you have in, in this in this case right this strong this strange combination in the U.S. right now of a feeling of both power and vulnerability at the same time, and a sense that uh, Europe is less and less of a factor militarily. They're, they're, the conservatives in particular think Europeans are hopeless because they don't have a serious military. They can't really help it. They slow us down in, in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan. And they would also say in Europe is hopeless economically and, dem and demographically because they're getting old and the welfare state and all of this. And so I, you can see, particularly among conservatives, but not just among conservatives in the U.S., a sense that Europe's losing its value uh, as, a, as an important ally. That may have changed a bit in the last six months or so. We can talk about that because we can also see the price of not having allies in terms of legitimacy, in terms of sharing the burdens in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and there may be some reassessment going on. But I think the longer term problem is still there. The America problem that comes out of this case study is this problem of too much power and hubris, combined with a very radical leadership that had an agenda uh, that was its own agenda. You have to ask yourself, though, if the Democrats win, if they ever win again an election and come back into power, will they also be susceptible to this hubris? Don't forget it was Madeleine Albright, when she was Secretary of State, who said, the U.S. sees farther because it stands taller. <laughs> and uh, she said, we are the indif indispensable power. Well, she's right, but the one point she didn't mention was not the um, we're not omnipotent. We may be indispensable, but we're not omnipotent. And we may have learned something, and there may be a, a learning process out of Iraq in terms of sort of thinking about maybe the limitations now uh, of some of this uh, of, of military power. But we'll see. But I think those structural changes are not going to go away. This is nothing new. People have been saying this for years. With the end of the Cold War, the, the real basis for a close U.S.-European relationship, I think, uh, are going. Uh, I mentioned then the second, the, the second changes are the domestic changes. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Bush administration people. Clearly, this administration has had a very negative view of what they call Venus Europe as opposed to Mars America, the Kagan kind of view that the Europeans are not serious about defense and, and all of that. And, um, uh, and we'll have to see. I think the, the hard question to answer about the U.S., unlike Europe, is yet the red-blue question and the polarization of America on a whole series of issues, including foreign policy issues. You don't really have that kind of polarization in Europe. And I was always struck by this role reversal that's occurred. It used to be the Europeans that were polarized. I remember you think about the French, you know, always the ideological quarrels and Marxists to the left versus the conservative right. And now there's a very sort of broad consensus in Europe. It's almost boring. I mean, you know, new metal, Tony Blair, third way. Uh, there's not this kind of real sense of strong polarization. In the U.S., of course, just the opposite. We became the Europeans. Now we're like the Europeans in the 1930s. Huge debates. Like, again, the Shivo case is another example of that, of the emotion that can come up very quickly, anger uh, toward other Americans. Uh, the, the whole series of issues. So this, this is an issue that when you're thinking about how deep is a change that Bush has brought, most Europeans would probably say that Bush is beginning to represent America, but I'm still not so sure. I still think that the jury is out uh, on this, and as we were saying during lunch, I mean, the, it wasn't exactly a landslide victory for Bush. And if you look at public opinion today, he's not exactly a, pop, a wildly popular president, especially on foreign policy. So we'll see. But... So in that sense, maybe there'll be some retrenchment back, but even if you get a more reasonable, let's say, depending on your point of view, government, you still have this issue about the declining role of Europe in American defense policy, which is not going to change, and you still have the problem of hubris coming out of an enormous American military power and economic power to some extent, though that's stating, it seems. On the German side, the Berlin Republic, Germany's now fully sovereign. 
It's not like France was always sovereign during the Cold War. Britain was always sovereign. It, Italy, to some extent, was always sovereign, to the extent that Italians ever think about the nation state as opposed to their own regions. But, but Germany wasn't. Germany, sure, it had a constitution. It was recognized. It joined the UN. But West Germany was always a semi-sovereign country, heavily dependent on NATO, on the US, and on American foreign policy. Now, all of a sudden, you have the end of the four power rights, the end of the American military presence is coming in Germany in the next five to ten years, and Germans are back again in control of their own sort of fate. And that is different. And that brings a new sense of sovereignty. You also, of course, and it's also now the most populous state in Europe again. It's no longer the same size as France, Italy, and Britain. It's now 80 million and falling, but it's 80, 82 million people, which is the largest state uh, in Europe. Uh, and also you have the Berlin Republic, not the Bund Republic. That means you now have 17 or 16 million Germans who grew up in the East with a very different political culture, strategic culture, sense of what the U.S. is all about, about NATO, about Germany. And that is, sure, they don't, they actually, if you think about it, the last election was determined probably by those voters because the total difference in votes between the CDU, CSU, and the SPD was 6,000 votes. It's like Florida. And the difference was the East Germans, not only, but the, who basically switched over because of the Iraq War and the way that Schroeder used the Iraq War, very you know, cleverly in his own way, opportunistically, and it worked. So the East Germans do hold a, a big balance here, uh, even though it, they're very dependent in terms of economics and everything else. Also, the geography changes. Germany now is both a Western country, but it's also a Central European country again. And this whole idea of Germany as a central, a central market is back, and I think that's not going to change. Also, the rise of the new generations, the post-war generations to power. First, the 68er generation that's currently in power, Schroeder, Fischer, uh, that group, uh, which who's really sort of cut their teeth on the anti-Vietnam demonstrations, and their view of the U.S. is a lot more mixed, let's say, than the Cole-Schmidt view, generation view, which remember, remember the U.S. is sort of liberating them after the war, the Berlin airlift and all of that. This generation came of age during Vietnam, Watergate, uh, and also trying to get a better sense of German identity that's a more balanced idea of German identity, not entirely based upon penance for the Third Reich, but trying to develop a sense of what, what Schroeder would call normality. I'll quote which Schroeder in his first government declaration in 1998 declared, quote, that his government represented a generational change in the life of our nation. The constraints which had weighed down the previous generation had been overcome to the point that the German people have now long been a normal people, unquote, so that the new generation can look to the future without guilt complexes and unselfconsciously represent their own interests, unquote. And uh, so that, you see that coming with this generation. You saw this last, a few months ago, uh, Dresden, they had the big, you know, the anniversary of the bombing of Dresden, and you see in, a, in the Gunter Grass novel, uh, Krebsgang, a whole series of indications coming out that Germans are now looking at themselves as victims and not only as perpetrators. That tells you something is changing about identity, that this can be brought up again and by younger people as well. So I think that's important. And then behind the 68ers, you have the people of your age, these what we call the 89er generation, the people that were socialized after unification both in the East and in the West. And there is this group right now, I would say a group of about 18 to 20 years old, the so-called Gulf Creek Generation, people, the generation of the Gulf War, of this war. Their images of the U.S. being shaped now by Bush and very negative on the U.S. And you can see, I mean, one of the things that strikes you if you look at public opinion surveys, a Marshall Fund survey, Pew, whatever, uh, Allensbach, 
you see that German opinion shifted dramatically away from the U.S. and a whole series of indicators during the war. It hasn't come back. Not that much. Now, maybe it'll start to come back a little bit more, but especially among younger people, I think you, you have a long-term effect of this war on the German generation of 18 to 22-year-olds. So I think the generations coming behind uh, the 68ers are going to be even more skeptical, not necessarily anti-American, but more skeptical about the U.S. and are more willing to sort of have a sense of self-assertion and identity. Um, and they're also, of course, less grateful, quote-unquote, to the U.S., and that's, this is why you can see why the Bush approach failed miserably with this Germany. I think Condi Rice is part of this because she had dealt with Germany back during unification. And her idea of Germany was Helmut Kohl and good allies and two plus four. And all of a sudden, you know, and I think most of these people thought, well, the Germans will come along at the end of the day because they always do, because they need us, and because if they don't come along, the CDU will win the election because people will be too afraid of anti-Americanism and of being isolated from the U.S. Didn't happen. Partly because of this fact that, well, great, you know, we're not going to be grateful anymore. What do we have to be grateful for? But also this sense of independence that you have growing in Germany. And I was struck, if you look at Schroeder's language, he talked not only about the war and why it's a bad idea and appeal to some pacifism, but he talked a lot about German independence. He used the term like, we will not click our heels when the president says we should do something. And they use that kind of terminology a lot. Click our heels. They compare the American ambassador to the Soviet ambassador during the East German period, Abrasimov, or to a proconsul from Rome. So you had a lot of this language that tells you it wasn't simply about Iraq. It was also about Germany and about the little brother growing up or no longer being the junior partner. And that's extremely important in the German case because the cycle, and again, Professor Stefan can go into this better than I can, but the whole psychological uh, identification with the Americans and Americanization it was much deeper in Germany than ever was in France or the UK because of the whole legacy of the Third Reich and the need to find a new identity. So that's why it's more volatile in Germany. And it's interesting because here people don't care that much. I mean, I don't see a lot of anti-German sentiment among Americans. I mean, to them it's, okay, it's, it's, I think they're actually still fairly pro-German. Pro in Germany, the U.S. no longer gets the benefit of the doubt. And it won't for a while, a long while probably. Sure, a new government that's more pro-U.S. might help a little bit, but I think there's been a real change in the Stimmung, in the mood, that's going to be long-term in Germany. And it's partly because there's more to be disillusioned about. The Germans actually had maybe more illusions about Americans as a good power than the French ever did, or the Brits ever did. So I would say Bush and Schroeder then were catalysts for changes that were going to come anyway because the structural changes, the changes in Germany. In fact, I talked to one of uh, Fisher's advisors, and he read before the war, I think it was before the war, just yeah, building up to the war, and he said, well, you know, we were looking for some ways to say no to the Americans anyway. We wanted to let the Americans know that we were no longer the old German Germany. We're not going to be the, the compliant partner. And Schroeder has made it very clear. said, I'm stepping up to the plate. The Bundeswehr is going to Afghanistan. The Bundeswehr fought in Kosovo. So we Germans are not going to hide behind history anymore. We're going to play a larger role in NATO and in military operations. On the other hand, we expect to be consulted as part of that. You can't just tell us what to do anymore. And so he also felt that he had he'd stepped up and supported Bush on uh, unlimited solidarity after 9-11. He sent German troops to Afghanistan in spite of the fact that his own party 
a large, large part of his own party and the Greens were against it, took a big political risk, just barely survived a, po a political vote of, of confidence in the Bundestag. So he felt he paid his dues. And then he felt Bush just basically, well, we can talk about that because it's not quite that clear, but he felt that Bush was not really consulting with him. But also he knew that he needed to win the election and he knew that this issue was going to play. So actually it's interesting in the chronology of things, Schroeder's attacks on Bush start before the Cheney speech, which they always say was the reason that he was doing that. So we can talk about that. So let me just close by saying that these are long-term trends and that as a result, I think the shift to Berlin away from Washington toward Europe at least, if not toward Paris, is decisive and will not come back that much. Uh, that uh, the fact that, uh, that Schroeder in the campaign used this very loaded term, the German way, was a significant use that no chancellor before that, I don't think, would use that term because it, it, it signifies a very sort of new independence of Germany, but also sort of breaking a little bit from constraints. Uh, the fact that uh, uh, that you that you uh, that Schroeder also said that he would not that Germany would not support the UN on Iraq, no matter what the UN did, which again breaks with a long tradition of multilateralism. The fact that now he's talking about Germany having a seat in the UN Security Council, a permanent seat as Germany. He's not even trying to talk about the, an EU seat or some kind of a European seat. It's just Germans have a right to be you know, respected and be, uh, be a, a player. Uh, I would say the discussion of Germans as victims is a sign of change. Uh, and um, the last point I would say it's an interesting sign of change is the willingness to include Russia in a coalition against America. When you had during the Iraq war, you see it again coming up a little bit now in Iran, that you have the uh, France, Germany, and Russia opposing an American policy. That never would have happened, I can guarantee that, during the, you know, the good old days of the, of the Cold War. Now, I would say, in conclusion, that this is not all bad. That, to some extent, it was, as I said, it was bound to change. Germans were not going to be the little brother for the next 30 or 40 years. Uh, and that there, there needs to be a more unsentimental, realistic sort of relationship. And I think we're starting to see that on both sides. Bush recognized it as well, that maybe he made some mistakes. Schroeder has walk back a little bit, but it's not an alliance anymore. It's going to be a series of ad hoc coalitions on issues of common interest, like Ukraine, for example, probably Kosovo, maybe Palestine, depending on how that plays out. Uh, Afghanistan, yes. But you'll have big differences on the China arms embargo, which is a huge issue right now in Germany. Uh, that's going to be a problem. I think the Palestine-Israel issue could be a major problem, depending on how it plays out, how the administration plays it. Uh, and certainly um, uh, other areas as well. I mean, the Bolton nomination is certainly... Because I mean, you have also this world order problem that's still very much there. The Germans and the Europeans just have a different sense of world order institutions. The role of the UN, the role of international law, uh, and multilateralism, whatever you want to call it, uh, where I think the U.S. administration has clearly not been as forthcoming on that as they would like, like it to be, let's put it that way. So I would close by saying... Um, I talked about the American problem. I'll just close by saying, is there going to be a new German problem? And in the book, I get into this a little bit at the end, and the Germans sort of reacted when I brought this up. It's, oh, it's no way. But the, the, what I would just say, the, the, why there might be a new German problem is not because of the old German problem, because there were two aspects of the old German problem. The lack of democracy, which is no longer a problem. Germany is a stable, mature democracy. It's not going to fall back into neo-Nazi kinds of you know, regimes or something like that. So that's not a problem. But the other part of the German problem was where it fit into Europe. 
the Bismarckian problem of how a country that's bigger and more powerful than most of its neighbors, but not powerful enough to impose an order, how could it deal with that without creating encircling alliances against it? The answer has been two answers, two pillars. The Atlantic pillar, which is now very substantially weakened and will not play that role anymore in stabilizing Germany, NATO, uh, and all of that. And the European pillar, the EU. The EU is now the real hope uh, for Germany to stay within an integrated framework that will prevent both sort of uh, ego, nationalistic egotism on the part of some German leaders in the future or a counter-reaction from the outside. And when I was in Poland a few weeks ago, I was just struck by, you know, when you talk about Germany and Poland, the Poles are very concerned about where Germany's going, probably overly concerned. But you feel, when you go to places like Poland or other countries that border Germany, that there is still a, is a little bit of an anxiety developing about where is this all going? Where is Schroeder really going? What's his strategy? Why is he violating the stability pact? Why is he losing interest in Europe? So you could see... I think it's less, I think the American problem is a bigger problem of the two. But the German problem might emerge in a certain form because of the new conditions that came out of Iraq. So that is background. I'm really happy to take any questions or personal attacks or anything. Yes? Uh, you know, personal attacks. Yeah. Um, um, I, guess, I guess I want to put the question this way. I'm, I'm a little puzzled um, about the balance in your remarks between Germany and EU. Yeah. So um, having just talked to a good friend from, from Hamburg who was lamenting the state of the German uh, university system, uh, having talked to friends um, about lamenting the German economic system. I guess my question is for the 20-year-old. So I'm trying to think where I should focus for the next 50 years. I'm an international relations student, international studies student. Why should I care what's happening in Germany? Right. It's, you know, right. it's either going to go to OEU or it's going to be completely marginalized. Right. I, well, I think that actually... When I finished this book, I felt too this, this may be, it may not be any future in writing more books about German-American relations because it's not going to be there. It's going to be, because the Germans also learned that they can't deal with the U.S. without the EU behind them. If they try to go one-on-one -on -one with the U.S., they're going to be at a complete disadvantage. And you'll have the, the, the dilemma of Blair. You know, basically, look at Blair did. He was you know, the good ally. What did they get him? So I think in that sense you're right. And, the, and I think with the Constitution going through, whether it goes through or whatever comes out of it, there's gonna, they're not going to collapse. Um, I think that, uh, that the EU, and even Bush, when he went this time, he went to the EU, which was a big, a big symbolic move that he didn't just visit NATO, but he also visited the EU. And I hope that we understand that this is going to be the future and that the U.S. ought to really upgrade its institutional relationships with the EU. So I think Germany matters in the sense of where the EU is going. So I mentioned, I don't think you can have serious economic reform or economic growth in Europe without a vibrant German economy. It's still the biggest by far. And the huge debate going on right now in Germany is not about Iraq or about Afghanistan. It's about the economy and, and jobs and, and whether they need a Margaret Thatcher. And so I think that that's where it, it, Germany can slow things down. It can, it can really, uh, it can really, it can either hinder or help economic reform, political reform. So I think from the EU perspective, I don't see the EU going anywhere without the Germans. That would be my view. Yes, Eric. Um, so uh, first, I thought that was a really great talk. Thank um, you. Now, I remember, uh, I was in Italy the summer when Schroeder was re-elected. So I even remember reading in Corriere della Sera, just a couple of days after the election, that this was a terrible thing that Schroeder had done because he had kind of sold out the uh, European Union 
their yeah. own personal gain because they could already see the cleavage. I think this was in August you know, that I remember reading that editorial. So I think one of the most provocative things that you asked was what in future scenario could occur where the Germans would be dependent again upon the strategic might of the U.S.? Mm -hmm. The only one that I could come up with is related to the idea that the EU has so far been successful. But could we imagine a scenario where the EU would fall apart and where Europe might again fall into chaos? Maybe not in the next 10 years, but in the next 30 years. So I'm going to ask the question, this is a big part of uh, <coughs> European um, uh, politics and German politics. What do you think is going to happen with the accession of Turkey into the European Union? Mm -hmm. and could you imagine 30 years from now demographic trends in Europe such that the EU falls apart because of cultural Islamic Christian tensions, something like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the Turkish membership is a mistake from the EU's point of view, even though it has nothing to do with, you know, the, the Muslim culture and all that. It has to do with the fact that Turkey will be bigger than Germany in, what, 20 years in terms of population trends. It'll have more than 80 million people. And that makes it the biggest country in the EU, has a huge impact on the institutions of the EU, spending and all of that. I think it's a bridge too far. I think that Europe has got to stop. And I think in talking to Europeans, you get the sense that they really know there's going to be a long pause, at least, before any more expansion occurs. But they may have gone too far already in terms of expansion. So I agree. This is the real danger, I think, that you have an over-enlargement and that it becomes so, as you said, becomes so fragmented that Germany then gets pushed back into that position was before, you know, in 1870 or so, after unification. So I think that's a danger. Also, I think one of the huge, biggest problems the Europeans are facing is a lack of integration of Muslim minorities living in places like France, uh, the UK, even Germany. Um, though the Turkish minority, I would not put them in the same category as I would with North Africans, because it's different. It's a different secular kind of culture. But and they are really facing a major problem there. Not only social problem, but also terrorist problem that could develop if they don't do a better job of integrating these minorities. And I haven't seen much movement on this. So. Uh, I think, it, yes, you have to think about it. that would be a scenario, but I don't know how that would, the U.S. would come back in in some form under that kind of a scenario, but what, the Germans become competitors with the U.S. in the old Europe, new Europe kind of, of way, I just don't know. Yes, sir. I'm glad that you mentioned the Kagan book, because people like Max Boot and others, you know, sort of the, the, the neoconservative policy right project in the American century, have been arguing for a long time that the Europeans are simply falling out of the race altogether because they're really not trying very hard. Yeah. Right? And Germany is sort of the classification. The British and the French seem to be trying, right? They have air criteria, you can go on those kinds of things. But the Germans, right? I mean, someone, I, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, the instructor uh, yeah. mentioned that the Bundeswehr, you know, lack terror, you know, any kind of capabilities at all. I read somewhere in the Economist, I think that the Germans don't have a single heavy lift aircraft. Right. Right? I mean, it, it, to, my, to my mind, Germany is sort of evolving towards, you know, towards a, becoming an over-muscled Switzerland. Right? So, if you accept that, if you are yeah. Bush nationalist and you accept that, right. you have this sort of a civilian superpower, but you know, under anarchy you need to be a military superpower as well as an economic one. Right. Why, why should Rumsfeld care? Right. If, if I'm changing, if I'm Rumsfeld, I'm a Bush nationalist, right? and I'm looking at the world and I see yeah. a lot of mess out there on that Eurasian perimeter yeah. that's really messy and the United States is going to have to contend with. Why do I care if the Germans want to drop out of the race? I mean, what, like you said, I mean, the, the first question I think was relevant at this point. Will you be giving this talk in 20 years to an American audience? I mean, will anyone be here to show? I mean, will we care, yeah. or are we going to look for the guy talking by Yemen? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, I do think that, because I just taught a course this fall on European security, and we looked at a lot of the defense doctrines and what they're doing. And actually, there's a lot going on uh, in European defense in terms of longer-term trends, procurement. For example, they will have A400M heavy lift in 10 years. 
uh, and they are going to have uh, more sophisticated kinds of things. Again, we have to remember that they don't measure what they want to do with what we do, because their idea of what they need to do, what they have to do, is very different. It's going to be essentially peacekeeping, peace enforcement along the periphery, Balkans, that area. So they don't need to spend what we spend, and uh, they don't want to project their forces you know, into Asia. So from that point of view, uh, I think their big problem is the lack of uh, all the duplication and that they're getting less bang for the euro because they're having all these separate defense budgets. But they're actually, I think the Bundeswehr, in terms of its concept, has come a long way. They have crisis reaction forces they're talking about. They have forces in Afghanistan, which for Germans is a, a big change. But the problem there is they don't have the money. They have a very good concept, but their defense spending is 1.5% of GDP. It's not going to change. Even with a CDU government, it's not going to change. So I think that, yeah, the answer is, why should Rumsfeld care on the military? He was right. No, sure. And that's why I think NATO's doomed, because the coalitions of the willing thing is what's going to be the future. What they do need to worry about is the possibility that Europe could become, in 20 or 30 years, a peer competitor, because it does have the resources, the population base. Uh, it's beginning to develop a political will. It might be able to develop more cohesion by defining itself against the United States, a la France, Francais. You know, and so I think from that point of view, it's a hard competitor for the U.S. We can't go to war with them. Uh, they could support, and look what they're doing with China right now. This whole China arms embargo, that's got a lot to do with multipolarity. So they could cause problems, or they just stay out. They just sit out, and then the U.S. has to carry more of the load. So I agree on the military side. I mean, they're picking up the peacekeeping in Bosnia right now. Maybe they'll do Kosovo fairly soon. Um, and we work with them very well, I think, on Ukraine and things like that. So they could pick up that sort of thing, which the U.S. doesn't want to do anyway in Europe. But I think militarily, they're never going to want to be like the U.S. They feel that, you know, they have this idea of a soft power. Hard, they, have, they have a hard power component, but they have an idea that their real attractiveness, and they may be right in the long term, comes from this. I did ask Rumsfeld. I, I talked to my, my colleague at SICE, who's very conservative, Elliot Cohen, who's really, you know, on the Defense Review Board, and I saw him the other day. He said, this is the last war we're going to do like this. You know, we're not going to do another Iraq. And if he's saying that, you know, no, you know, who knows? But I think there may be something to that. I can't imagine that even the U.S., except for Korea uh, or Taiwan, something like that, but the U.S. looking around for another major conventional war like that. So even there, I'm not sure what the U.S. is going to be doing in terms of major deployments. But, but who knows? I mean, you can't predict those sort of things. But yeah, I think that the ba your basic point is right. The Europeans are developing. They know that they have to take care of their own security that the U.S. is not going to be there in the future, and that it's better if they take care of their own security and they can handle their own security. The big question mark is the U.K. As long as the U.K. doesn't play, they can't go very far. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, I, I suppose, though, it's fair to point out that this is not the way the United States wanted it to be. Before the Iraq War, Rumsfeld, et cetera, very much wanted to have German forces and as many European sure. forces as possible to take from the cost of uh, right. We would not be talking now about imperial overreach because we can't do all these things. You know, we, we, so we really wanted the Germans to spend more money regardless of their inability to do so and so forth. So this is, mm -hmm. this is a, it may now be the reality that, we've, that we weren't able to push the Europeans into this and now they can go a different way and invest quite differently and so forth to have a different future. But, uh, you know, and given that, I, I think your points um, are all very well taken and reinforced by the um, cultural or the cultural divide that we now have mm -hmm. increasingly uh, West Europeans don't understand this phenomenon of the Christian right in the United States. They mm -hmm. uh, look at us in terms of the, uh, I think one of the reasons why the polls still look so bad after Iraq is uh, 
because of the ongoing prisoner scandal, the detainee right. scandal, right. Uh, for the Europeans, it's unbelievable that what's happening at Guantanamo Bay, right. in Afghanistan, and Iraq, but also, right. you know, that just piles on top of the death penalty that we have still in uh, such high numbers. So, right. I, I really don't, I, I think your points are quite well taken, that there's no going back, but it's for deep, very deep reasons as well. Um, the right. Europeans have, have just a very different and the Germans had this case too. These people who were held in Arizona, I think, and then they and they weren't allowed. The consul couldn't see them, and they were executed. And, right. No, I agree. And I think that the Abu Ghraib impact was very deep in Germany because I do think Germans expected it. We taught them. They, I mean, to some extent, we taught them. You know, what this is how the rules are supposed to be, and and this is what's right, and how you, you know, respectful the rule of law and all that. And then all of a sudden, they see the the great teacher now, you know, doing this sort of thing. And I think it really damaged the U.S. I agree with you. I think it's not going to change that. And I say also it's partly growing up. It's partly sort of Germans are going to get back on their own feet to some extent. And they want their own identity. To some extent, they have to shape it against the U.S. I mean, it would have been coming, I think, maybe anyway. But this, this administration is the perfect foil. Because it, it's a the clash of strategic cultures couldn't be more, more different, more, more sharp than with, with this approach. Yes? That's interesting because that was well, before Bush went to Brussels. That was the debate because you know, the conservatives had this big discussion going on about um, it's, it's kind of you know that Europe is they said Europe is kind of like useless, but you know we still have to worry about. It. I mean I can never understand the logic of that. But we have to worry about them because what they might do with this European Convention. Constitution is that they might neutralize the UK, and the UK will no longer be an ally of the US, but they not be part of the EU. And I think they were also, to some extent, concerned about the possibility of this coalition of Russia, France, and Germany causing problems for the US. So there, there was a sense, the discussion among, I think conservatives would say, let's play the coalitions of the willing game, let's divide, this. we have friends in Poland, we have friends in Italy to some extent. We used to have friends in Spain, that kind of changed, but, but uh, and let's play that off because it's not only a conservative view. It, the Americans have always been ambivalent about European unification. On the one hand, they want to have it because it prevents wars and it's good. On the other hand, if it gets to be too unified, it can become a pure competitor for the United States. And, and now with the euro especially becoming increasingly powerful, there are concerns in, in our dependence on foreign investors to supply money to keep our deficits you know, going. So I think that to some extent there was this debate uh, Bush went, uh, there was an interesting, uh, I'm told that Dan Freed, who is now um, the NSC person on Europe, uh, no, where's he going? He's going, he's going to state now. He was the NSC person on Europe. He wrote a memo right after the election for Rice, which said we've got to, we've got to mend our ways to some extent with the Europeans. And Rice obviously bought into this, and she somehow was able to convince Bush that it's better to do this, take this more friendly approach, which actually was also a way to divide the Europeans. Because if Bush kept this old approach going, it just pulls the Europeans more against the U.S. If he's nicer, I think what he's maybe trying to do is try to pull the, the, front, the Germans a bit away also from the French. So by being less aggressive and saying nice things, and, uh, to some extent it undermines those who might want to create this counterbalance to the United States. So I still think that the conservatives at the bottom of their hearts don't trust Europe and don't want to see a really unified Europe. That does that, that does more than simply follow American orders. You know, the idea of multi, effective multilateralism is we decide what to do, and you guys come along with us. And if the Europeans start to say no to that, then I think it undermines that uh, 
So I think the conservatives, I think, are unhappy with Bush right now. I think they probably think he went too far in being too nice to the Europeans. And he ought to be playing off, you know, the Poles against the, the Germans. And, and, and that might still, because it might happen on their own. I mean, the dynamics of Europe itself are still pretty fissiparous, and you could still see some possibilities of, of that. You know, they were playing on, divi on divisions that were there. It wasn't that they were creating the divisions. So we'll see. I think I think it'd be wise to follow a supportive of to support European unification. It may have some problems for us, but overall, it's much more in the American interest for burden sharing and for a whole series of things than to have a divided Europe. I mean, what, what can Europe do if they're if they're all split up? They can't do much on a lot of other issues like financing issues and things. So, but I'm an Atlanticist, and I mean, you know, I'm probably uh, my students are not nearly as Atlanticist as I am. So that could be a time factor too. I think younger Americans. I'm not sure, you know, how they're going to view this year, whether it's really they're going to be in favor of European unification or not. I just don't know. Yeah. Well, how, this is a little different. How would uh, 25 years from now, a hostile China, yeah. the only possibility for non superpower, and constitute serious hostile relations in the United States, draw U.S. closer to Germany? There, that's the, uh, one of the arguments that people are making that not only the, the rise of China and India will be coming in the next 30 to 50 years, and therefore the West, quote unquote, if it still exists, ought to come together before that materializes. And right, right, right. But China seems so far away for the Germans. I mean, it's um, and this and, and Schroeder is a real. Uh, he, he's like a, he's like an American governor. He, his idea of foreign policy is getting jobs. And uh, so to him, China is a great, you know, not only is it a great opportunity, economic opportunity, but also China will help be helpful in the UN Security Council seat. I don't know if you saw today's paper, the Chinese-Japanese dispute over Japan's membership on the uh, Security Council. So the Germans also, uh, that's why they're holding out now with the French to get rid of the arms embargo. They don't want the Chinese to turn against them, I think, on the UN Security Council either. Uh, it's interesting to see that the opposition in Germany itself now to lifting the arms embargo, which wasn't there a month ago, is now quite strong, including, of course, the Greens on uh, human rights issues, the CDU more on U.S. relationship, uh, and also in the U.K. So I, I'm not so sure that uh, the arms embargo is going to actually be lifted right away. But I think that that's a good question. And the Chinese have an interest, of course, in playing the U.S. off against the Europeans. And they may be able to do it because of the lucrative markets that, that China has. I don't think there's a lot of support for Taiwan in Europe, really. They could care less about that. I mean, to them, it's they're much more sort of realpolitik. China's the power. Let's deal with China, and let's get into that huge Chinese market because we Germans, you know, our economy is in trouble, and we need to find export more export markets. So that could be a divisive. I don't think it's going to pull something like you know, yellow peril kind of pulls the West together against the Indians and the Chinese. I don't think that's going to going to be very effective anymore. Well, I think the U.S. would need Europe more, especially Germany, rather than the other way around. I agree with you. They would not come over here. Yeah. But because of the well, you could be. You're at this arms embargo is a good example of, of the beginnings of perhaps of that going on. And we'll have to see because if the arms embargo is lifted, it also tells you that the French-German axis still works in this bigger Europe. If, if it's if it's undermined, then it tells you maybe this Europe is too is too fluid, too big for the French and the Germans alone to work. If that's a good point, I think that's an interesting point. Yes. Why wouldn't, in a, in a future conflict or, or tense situation, United States, China, or whatever, um, why wouldn't it behoove um, Europe or 
we, you know, uh, Austria Hungary, now Germany, France, whatever. Yes. Or something. Yeah. Why, uh, <coughs> why wouldn't it behoove Europe then to just fold its hands and go tisk tisk as and, and leave, leave the United States out to dry because if number one falls, suddenly the runner up, you know, right. assumes the position. Right. Why, why wouldn't Europe in that situation just fold its hands and say, you know, I think that's a good point because I think the lesson that you saw Schroeder and Chirac and maybe other Europeans drawing from Iraq was that the real problem was American power. It wasn't Saddam was a problem, but the real problem was this unfettered American power. So to some extent, that's why I say they were interested in this relationship with China as, and also with Russia as a way of sort of creating other poles. They'll deny that they're trying. That Schroeder keeps saying he's not a, he's not a counterbalancer, but so I think you've got a point. And I think if the, if the U.S. particularly, if it continues to use its power in a way that's seen as sort of disregarding all the other major powers, disregarding institutions that the U.S. actually put together, like the U.N. and, and so on, then that tendency will be there to say, well, what's our stake in the U.S. You know, being the number one power if they're going to act like what they consider to be a rogue state? So, yeah, I could see that. I mean, I think that, the, I think actually that, if you believe that the tendency with a dominant power is to have balancing <coughs> as opposed to bandwagoning, which I still think is probably the likely tendency, there's going to be a natural tendency in the system to balance against that power, which would be in that case the U.S., so that even the Europeans will move, will start to balance without, yeah, so I, I could see that they would play games with the Chinese and the Russians and, and also stay, I mean, again, they're not going to want to go to war over Taiwan. And if the U.S. is weakened by it, well, maybe the Europeans will be, you know, strengthened by it too, so very possible. I do think the relationship is fundamentally different now. We can't rely on the Europeans just to be there in the future. Yes, yes. Oh, then how do you see the role of Latin America potentially down the road? Uh, I, I believe the Spanish just um, made a new agreement with Venezuela in the month one. And um, I just wonder if you have any comments on this larger uh, scenario. Right. <laughs> any particular, also with the ship. Yeah. Well, I mean, Spain, uh, Spain especially, but um, Europe is a very strong part. You know, it's a very acceptable alternative. It could be either a complement or an alternative to American power in Latin America. We all know, you know, what the American image is in some of those parts of the world. So, so the Spanish have been, have been very active. There's more EU investment going in. I, I don't know that they think of it in power terms. I think it's more just sort of economic, cultural kinds of ties. But there could be, again, if you think about this longer-term trend for a more multipolar world as a way of trying to balance American power or subdue it a little bit, you could see the Europeans perhaps playing, you know, Monroe Doctrine, I don't know how that comes into all this, but they could play it in subtle ways, not putting bases there, but having, but drawing the, Euro the Latin Americans more toward uh, Europe in terms of investment. And I think one last point is that, Professor, somebody mentioned about the higher education system in Germany, which I'm actually very much involved in this whole idea of but I do think that the Europeans are going to move to become much more competitive with the American universities in higher ed over the next 50 years as well. And that's a form of cultural diplomacy too. So I think that um, depending on how our visa policy goes and how the sort of sense about foreigners goes in the U.S. and how the U.S. is viewed, I could see the brain drain starting to reverse a little bit. You see a little bit now in Germany. And, um, this school that I'm teaching at next year is a private school in Berlin that's being organized by a German foundation, and they're teaching in English. 
so I think you can see that they're starting, you know, the Germans are so slow to reform, and it took the Constitutional Court to get it to happen, but I think you can start to see that happening as well. God was looking for one just person to say Sodom and Gomorrah in the most tales. Looking for one undergraduate to ask the last question. <laughs> <laughs> you get a trip to Bologna if you ask me. Okay. Um, recently, the Free University had a poll come out that said some of the Eastern and Northern would rather have the wall back up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like underlying currents like that, Senator. Yeah, I mean, I've been giving a, you know, I think that I've been getting a pretty robust view of Germany. But actually, there's a lot of problems in Germany. Not, to, not to, I mentioned the economy, the dem demography, the aging of society, the difficulty of, in of integrating immigrants. Uh, but I think this East-West division is, uh, it's a huge drain on the German economy. And you wonder if they didn't have, they've been pouring huge amounts of money into basically subsidies into Eastern Germany. Now with the enlargement of the EU to Poland and Slovakia in particular, a lot of German businesses just moving across the border, the, the, you know, the wages in Poland are one-tenth of what they are in Eastern. So you wonder about the pro economic prospects of Eastern Germany with this huge competition right across the border. I think what will happen, looking at just some of the studies that I've seen on demography, is you'll have a depopulation of Eastern Germany. It's happening already. Younger people are moving to the West. They have certain pockets of of enterprise and prosperity, like in Dresden, Leipzig a little bit, but uh, Jena. But basically, you're going to have large parts that are going to be just depopulated. And it's going to take another generation. So younger people are adopting better. Younger East Germans are adopting better, I think. Um, and the, uh, the support for the Communist Party is basically going to be biologically determined in the next 20, 10 years. I mean, like, well, I said their membership is old. They get young support. From people, young people who are unemployed, the Nazi, the neo-Nazi types who vote for the NPD also. But I still think it's a huge issue for Germany, but they will solve it. And I think it will take longer. It's going to cost them more than they should have. They're doing that probably the most painful way they could have. They should have just let the market work a little bit in Eastern Germany, give the people incentives to invest over there, and they didn't do that. But I think um, I'm still amazed whenever I go to this country, and I go there a lot. I hear about all these problems, you know, crises. You go, you go to Berlin, these buildings, incredible buildings. You go to Dresden, I mean, it's just all that's being built up. So this, I wouldn't have those problems they got. I mean, it's still got a lot of capital. But I think there is a longer-term issue. But I don't want to denigrate that. There's a lot of problems the Germans are facing. But the Germans didn't become the way they are by being dumb. And at some point, it takes them a while. But at some point, I think they're going to reform. And uh, I think the, the Eastern problem will be eventually another generation or two, probably. But as I say, I think it's... When the older people die out, too, it'll be less of an issue. And there's no going back. No, let's go through. The wall, it's just an interesting question. Also, I mean, the, the, un, the unhappiness of democracy, you have about 35% of East Germans who think we're not happy with democracy. And, uh, you know, and people who vote for the NPD are from this group, the younger people in particular who are skinhead types, you know, who are just sort of out of it. They have no futures. So that's not, a, that's not an unimportant problem. A tax on foreigners is much higher in the East and in the West. So there's a lot of reconstruction that has to go on. And so it took the West Germans, even in the best conditions, you know, 30, 40 years, if you think about it. It's not until the, the election of Brandt, I would say, that you really had democracy take hold. And I, and I think uh, it's a tough issue. I agree. But it'll, I think it's, uh, yeah, as I say, I think it'll, it'll eventually work itself through. But it's, it's, it's costing a huge amount of money. Thank you for the question. It's a good question.